How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. And welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Whoa. Hey, welcome back, man. Hey, it's so good to be. And you too. It's, yeah. You know. Good to see you. It's really good to see you. How have you where, been? Where have you been? What, London? Yeah. You're, you're out. You're like gallivanting all over the the universe. I uh, Preaching the word of I am. Go, and that's I mean, right. This is going international, folks. We're it, not, it what is. is the I am? The I am. The idea that we're. Doing the best we can. Mm. That this is my current maximum potential. My I am, and I was actually talking about that in London, to people from all over the world. Yeah, and uh, I, it resonates with people yeah. from all over the world because it's who we are. The part that was most interesting is remember. So it's not just uh, exclusively for United States citizens. It is not. It for is, those who don't know what we're talking about, can we just break it down? Real with no I, version. I would be delighted. So th- the idea is this. Uh, I believe that we are always responding the best we can to the world. And the world around and within us is made up of four domains. Your home domain, no one's going to argue your home has had an influence on who you are. Yep. Right? I mean, and that's intuitive. You know that. You know that the home that you've grown up in is influencing you even now, no matter how old you are. And then there's the social domain, which is the rest of the world. The home is given a special place of its own. And the social domain, which is everything else. It's you being at work. It's being at school. It's going you know, to a ball game. It's going to the theater. It's just walking down the street. It is this world of our social domain. These two domains are outside. We respond to them. And the internal domains are our biological domain of our brain and body. Am I hungry? Am I tired? Digesting my lunch? It is about the cells that make our body up. And then what I call the I see domain. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? And think about this, folks. Can you think that you respond to these domains the best you can? Because that's the part that's really different. Because we spend so much time worrying that we're not doing the best we can, that we should be doing better. How can I be doing the best I can? This was actually one of the major discussions we had in London, okay. with people from all over the world. So there were people from New Zealand, from Lithuania, from France, from Brazil, from Saudi Arabia, um, just Pakistan, India. I mean, just think about this. This was a global community of, mm-hmm. of thinkers. And the main thrust of the, of the discussion was not only I am, but we were all there to talk about addiction because addiction is all over the world. And the part that really resonated, the, the first part was people said, nah, that can't be. How, how can you say that I'm doing the best I can? How can you say that somebody who is using drugs, overdosing on heroin, smoking weed, doing and how can they be doing the best they can? And the inroad for them to really appreciate it was the biological domain. Because if you think about it, we are a collection of cells. And a cell doesn't 
wake up one morning like a heart cell and say, you know, today I'm only going to beat half as much. Today I'm not going to do the best I can. I'm only going to beat a little bit. And But that heart cell will actually change the rhythm of its beat depending on how it's responding to the environment. You change the environment. You change the response. Once those folks from all over the world got that part, they recognized that, my goodness, we really are doing the best we can, which then challenges pathology, challenges the very idea of sickness, of illness. Because, you know, we've all had a cold, right? Yeah. Maybe have a sniffle, maybe get a fever. But the reason our body is doing that is not because it's broken. It's because it's responding to an invading virus or an invading bacteria. Something has entered the home domain of our body, and the rest of the body responds. Once the people understood that, and these were the scientists, they bought into everything else, and they began really wondering, okay, so we change the environment, we change response. How do we do that in something like addiction? Because the I am is not saying you have to like your I am. Just because it's the best you can do doesn't mean we say it's okay. Just because it's the best you can do doesn't mean you're not going to be held responsible because everything you do has a natural consequence. And just because it's the best you can do doesn't mean you're going to be successful. That's hard for people to really Mm. come to terms with. And for me, I have a definition of success. For me, success is when you love going to work and love going home. Love it. When you love being in the social domain and the home domain, things change in your biological domain. You feel calmer. You feel more connected. And the I see domain, how I see myself, I feel good. And I think other people see me that way. The you know Greg Brasso's show right before was talking about stress. Well, stress is a natural response of ourselves. Yeah. Right? We get a message from the brain from uh, uh, this fancy chemical called ACTH, adrenocorticotrophic hormone, and it's basically the Paul Revere and says something is happening, there's a danger. Yeah. And we respond. I mean, you've all done that, right? You, you're, you're maybe in traffic and somebody slams a brake on in front of you and you, and you suddenly get this jolt. Yep. Right? This adrenaline. That's another I am. The environment has changed around you and your biological domain responds. How cool is that? Very cool. So what the I am is basically challenging was the whole idea of sickness and pathology. So the talk that I gave, because yeah. I, I was there to, for a lecture and I got to give a talk you know, to this group, was about how we can extend the way we understand medicine by changing our paradigm, changing the framework. Because if somebody comes in to my office as a patient, Mm -hmm. they're already stressed out. They're already worrying that there's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. Now, if they're stressed out, their cortisol levels go up. Cortisol has an effect on your heart rate, so their heart rate is increasing, their blood pressure is increasing, they may feel sick to their stomach, they may be sweating, all the things that happen when you're under stress. But that's a natural response. Why would we say that that's sick? It's actually pretty amazing. We are these survival machines. We are designed 
to respond the best we can, it just doesn't mean that that is where you need to settle. Mm. Because if you don't like that response, the I am becomes a roadmap for you, a roadmap to say, okay, here are these four domains, my home, my social, my biological, and my I see. Remember the I see, how do I see myself? Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. What do I need to change? so that I am at a different I am that gets me closer to that goal of success. And that's what's so cool about the I am. Because the I am says because everything's interconnected, a small change can have a big effect. Right. You don't need to change everything. I'd like to think that giving this talk to these folks from New Zealand and you know Lithuania and everywhere was a way for them to begin realizing that that was a small change that could have a big effect. And do you think it did? I think it did. So do you think they'll bring this back to their home countries and I, try to spread the word? I think so. I really do. Plus, they all got a copy of, of Do You Really Get Me, which is the book that really talks about right. you know, the IC domain, which is you know, one of the foundations, of course, one of the four domains of the, the whole IM approach. The other thing that uh, we were able to talk about, my... my executive director from Drug Story Theater was with me. Oh, great. And so we gave a workshop on Drug Story Theater. So I gave a talk on the IM. That was in the morning. And then in the afternoon, uh, Nicole Conlon and I gave a talk on Drug Story Theater. And that also totally blew people away. As it should. Because they began realizing that they can use this in their country. The, the part that was... Remarkable, Mark, was, was how similar all of these dilemmas are with addiction. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in Brazil no. or if you're in London or if you're you know, in Boston or New York. Yep. Or it's the same difficulty, and it has the same effect because it's the same brain, and it's just another I am. So thanks for asking. Yeah. Didn't mean to go on and on like no, that. No, no, no. But, you know, no, I think people need to hear it you know, over and over again. Because it makes so much sense. What, yeah. You know, I came up with this in 1982. And honestly, um, I've, I've lived my life this way. I've lived my life wondering why I do what I do. Not worrying. Because mm -hmm. there's a difference between worrying and wondering. Because wondering allows you to really be creative and say, huh. So, okay, why did I do that? Right. Why did I why did I put on weight? Right. Why did you know? I react the way I did in that certain circumstance? Right. Why did I feel that my heart was broken? Yeah. You know? And we're about to talk about the I am as it relates to grief. To grief. Grief. Yeah. Is there such thing as good grief, by the way? Um well, there do I really <laughs> need to go there? Yeah becomes sort of a, a brown joke. Yeah. I don't know. Charlie Brown. I never really. Because Charlie Brown, good grief. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, what is good grief? I was good thinking grief. about that. Ever since we said we were going to do the show on grief, that's what I was thinking. What you is know? good grief? Like, well, why did he say that? Why did Charlie Brown say that? Yeah. I, well, where did. I, that was very interesting say. to find out where that phrase comes good from. Good grief. But we have Search an author coming in as well. We right? do. Patrick O'Malley. Patrick O'Malley Doctor sounds more like a. Bishop. Well, he, he he certainly is a leader in uh, f 
in grief. And he's a psychologist uh, out from Texas. And I believe he may, if if he wants to, he can certainly talk about the personal story that led to this. It's oh, he does very, have a very, very okay. powerful story. So get your tissues out. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm already, I'm already feeling it. Have you ever grieved? Um. Yeah. How do you grieve? What is your I am for grief? You know, what does your biological I, domain do when it comes to grieving? Well, let me. I, I'll I'll tell you part of of what happened over the last couple of weeks because when we went to London, yeah. Um, the first thing I did after this conference, because I had to do the conference, was I went to visit my older sister's grave. Your older sister's. Yeah, Susan. Okay. So um, she died completely unnecessarily in London. Uh, Before uh, you moved over here? No, 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 no. This was uh, this was just a few years ago. Oh, okay. Right? She had just turned sixty. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, she had this stomach problem. Remember, it's National Health over in England, and I was talking with the with the physicians over there, and what my sister was describing was really sounded like colon cancer. Um, and I tried to get them to, you know, explore that, and they thought it was something called diverticulitis, yep. which is an outpocketing of some of the gut. And um, she felt miserable and really sick, and was going in and out of the hospitals. And um, she was in the hospital, and I, I spoke with her, and I said, "Susan, I'm telling you, if if this was life threatening, I would already be there. I would be on so a plane." So you believe that it was. Their diagnosis was accurate. No, I, I I thought that it didn't need to be life threatening. I thought that you can. This is treatable, and they should treat it. And the bottom line was they, you know, they botched it. She she they did a surgery to to uh, try to get rid of the diverticuli. She'd already perforated, which means that something had yeah. already exploded in there. And she was septic, oh. um, and she never really recovered from the surgery. So, so she was living over in England at the time. Yep. So she was living in England in the time, and so you mean you talk about grief, even now, and it's now seven years, eight years. Yeah. Uh, just talking about it, um, I get teary. So that was what I wanted to do was go visit her, um, and just stood by the grave, yeah, and just spoke. And wish she was here. Yeah, they have a tradition there. This particular cemetery, where you walk in, it's beautiful, beautiful cemetery in Edgware. It's a little borough in England, and they have um, a collection of of just basically pebbles. Mm-hmm. And you can take a pebble and put it on the grave. And so I took four pebbles. One for each of my children, one for me, and one for my surviving sister, Lana, uh, who's out in California, and arranged them on the stone of my sister. So, yes, I have grieved, um, and I still miss her. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, one of the things that we may talk about is... 
I've worked with so many people who have had loss mm-hmm. and who are grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I say to them is, you know, if somebody tells you, hey, get over it. Yeah. I say, just tell them to go to hell. Mm. Because I don't think you get over these things. But you have to come to terms with it or it will consume you. You have to come to terms with it because it is now part of who you are. It is part of your I am. And it's now what you do with it. Um, I'm I'm telling you, I'm, I'm sitting here talking about this and I'm getting goosebumps because I... I miss her. I miss my mom. My mom passed. My dad passed. You know. Well, what about you? And how do you grieve? Like, what is your modus operandi for grief? Well, when when Susan died, I must admit it was so stunning. Um, as I was shock was the it was shock yeah. absolutely. And then I think I freaked my kids out because before I went over to England, Sophie came with me. Yeah, Sophie came with me to help. Um, I was sitting at the kitchen table with everyone, and I I just broke down crying, yeah. sobbing, sobbing with 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 tears. Yeah. And I don't think my I don't think my kids had ever seen me crying before. Yeah. Um, I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, why would you, you be? be right? Yeah. Uh, and I think it was startling to them because you know they see their dad, yeah. but I think they also understood. He's human. Yeah. Yeah. What is the What is the the reaction of crying what is that just the, the release of the pain what what actually is the biological phenomenon of just breaking down and crying yeah it, it it's a release it's a release i think so you know it's a, it's actually a fascinating question fascinating biological cascade of events that leads to that yeah. but it's more than just Cortisol or adrenaline. I mean, there's a whole chemistry. But, but think about, you know, how did that evolve? Mm. You know, how did how did human beings come up with that as a way to right. express it? So how does how does my shedding water from my eyes let you know that about you're hurting. exactly? I don't know. It's always been a mystery to me. Yeah. How about you? What about grief for you? Uh, so. I don't grieve well. What do you mean? I internalize grief. I'm fine. It's all good. I'm fine. Mm. It's fine. And well, how'd you come up with that strategy? It's not a. It's not an effective strategy. That's for sure. Um. So my father died when I was 20, mm. and I probably uh, didn't cry until I was 26. You know. Six years? Mm. What you... I mean... I was fine. I'm, I, it's good. I'm all... I'm good. So, you know, I know... What is that? What is that? Help but me. I know... I, but but what was the moment? What was... The moment of, at 26? Yeah. I what? don't know. Probably a realization that, you know, I will never see him again. Mm. You know? Don't you get teary now just yeah, thinking about of course. it? Me too. I understand. Isn't it amazing though? So it's it's not it's not something that goes away in a year. No. And, and no. And it, it, I mean there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
I feel I feel that way about my dad and my mom. Yeah. And Susan. Isn't it interesting? And you know, one of the things that that and I, I, maybe this is too shrinky and maybe it's it's too much of a rationalization, but I think it keeps them alive for me. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do they come to you? Um on occasion, I'll have a dream. The first time I had a dream about my dad after he passed, I said, what, what, what's going on? You're, you're dead. Yeah. And he looked so startled, and he just walked away. I have never said that to him in a dream since. He wasn't sure. And I, I, said, I drove him away. Oh, so you haven't seen him since? He was dead. I'm talking about when he was dead. I oh know. no 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 no! He's got. I, I've had great great dreams with my about my dad. You know, and, and there are all sorts of things. You know, my my dad was um, had a, a this remarkable sense of humor. So he was, you know, in hospice, and he says, "You know, I'm not buying any more green bananas, Joe." <laughs> you know, <laughs> I might not be around not long enough to see yeah, him right. And then before he he was, um, he decided he would try some St. John's wort, was which is you know an, an herbal antidepressant. Uh, and about a month or so had gone by, and I said, "So, Dad, you know, you think the St. John's St. John's wort is working?" And he says, "I don't know, but ha ha ha, I'm gonna die." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what do you think? Should we bring in a uh, an expert on this and I, to have him tell us what we're what we're talking about? I am so looking forward yeah. to bring in an expert on this. And what are we going to do? Is we're going to spend the second half of our show just exploring this, going deep into it, and really wondering. And and there may be many people out there who I hope are listening and who can resonate with this because we all know that we are never going to be immune from grief. No. It's part of who we are as human beings, and let's let's get somebody on the line. And Dr. O'Malley, are you on the line there? I am, gentlemen. Oh, welcome. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to call in. So appreciate it. So I don't know whether you had a chance to, to listen in a little bit to what we're talking about, but let's, let's hear. Tell us about... about your book, what you're trying to get across. And remember, when we talk about, you know, the I am, small changes can have big effects. So I want to know what small change you're hoping this will do. And also, you control no one. You influence everyone because everyone's so interconnected. What kind of influence? So we are all ears. Teach us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very grateful. So let me back the story up a little bit and tell you how I got to where I got. Um, you'd mentioned that. Um, I did listen to you all visit um, before I came on. I was a very young clinician, uh, young, so young I'm not sure I should have been allowed to practice, but I had a license, and so I got to. And uh, about the second year of my practice, um, our first son was born, and he was born prematurely. He lived six months mm-hmm. in the neonatal ICU. And we thought we had crossed the bridge. He came home and lived with us for another three months and then had a sudden event and died. And I, of course, we were stunned and heartbroken and um, just, uh, you know, 
felt everything that a bereaved parent feels. I returned to practice and began to get many, many patients and clients who had heard I had had a, an event, a grief loss, and wanted to come see me because here's a guy who's not only a clinician, but he's been through this. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up with a lot of, of bereaved parents as well as other forms of grief. Now, let me take you back in history just a little bit. Psychology really, uh, I sometimes say hijacked. I think a nicer word is just to say it adopted the whole notion of grief over 100 years ago when Freud wrote his paper on grief and depression. Mm -hmm. And things began to change right there. What I would say, and I think it fits beautifully in with your model, is what began to happen is we lost the organic natural understanding of grief and we pathologized it and we medicalized it and and Freud said that even in his early works he talked about grief as work that needed to be completed leap ahead to a model that many many people know about and that is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who wrote her famous five stages of grief mm-hmm. now keep in mind um, most some folks know this some don't that her model was not about grieving people it was about dying people Denial, bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance, were oncology patients she had interviewed to create that model. I had nothing else to, to, to lean on except Kula Ross's model, so I was very much, as a grieving person and a clinician, a stage kind of therapist. Let's get you through these stages to this place where you are now past and beyond and have moved on from your grief. But it wasn't working for my clients, and it wasn't working for me. Hmm. So I began to make a small change, as you put it, and that is I quit talking and I started listening. And what I began to hear from the folks I was listening to is their deep, deep need to tell me their story. They needed a place for their story to land. And what I also began to realize was that grief was absolutely not an illness or a pathology or a diagnosis. Grief is the experience we have because we love someone. And when that love is broken by death, and of course there are other forms of divorce and loss and illness, but when the attachment that we have is broken by death, grief is our response. It is not an illness. It is an act and an honoring of love. Mm. And once I began to see that and understand attachment theory a little bit more, um, my practice changed, my own grief response changed, because I think I, as many other people, we're feeling what I would describe as grief shame. The culture that has grown up through these last hundred years is not particularly supportive or conducive to receiving the story of grieving people. And it's certainly easy when you think about some of these stages and task models to make assumptions that if somebody is still grieving, and as you all were both saying, you carry this with you. Your story of loss is part of your eye, it's part of who you are. And you honor that every time you tell a story or you think of them or you go to the cemetery and lay a pebble. All of that is, I think, taking grief back to where it belongs, to its more organic roots, to its more natural sense of of what it is. And the thousands of folks I've seen who will ask the question, how long do I grieve? They come in already self-diagnosed. Something's wrong with me, Doc. What's happening? It's been six months. It's been six years. I still feel sadness. Mm-hmm. And I will often ask them this question. Well, I'll tell you how long it will take. How deeply did you love? Mm-hmm. 
and immediately the shame just sort of falls off of them, the pressure to do this. The book's title is Getting Grief Right, Finding Your Story of Loss and the Sorrow of Love. And that's an ironic title because Getting Grief Right is a very individual, unique thing. It's your grief. There is no right way. Uh, what is right is what works for you <clears throat> because it is your story to tell. So when we talk about small changes, I think a, a I'm going to say it's a small change because it seems so simple. But I think so many of the folks I see in our culture spend so much energy resisting their grief right. and resisting their suffering that they have a whole other level of suffering. And I think by our opening to it as a story of love, and part two is to have a better community, find ways for us to be a better community to receive the story of those. Many people who come see me do so because they're so isolated. Their friends are gone. The casserole dishes have been picked up. They don't have anywhere else to share and tell the story, and they feel ashamed to do it. Uh, so I, I think this whole notion of part two of what I, I, I write in the book about, part one is to give some relief to those who grieve, to understand the nature of what it is. And part two is to discuss how can we as a community, you know, that social part of your, of your domains group, how can the rest of the world, how can we be curious and compassionate with those who grieve? How can we not shame them? How can we make sure we don't try and manage our own anxiety about their pain by offering some cliche or platitude that really has absolutely no use at all? It's wonderful. I, I, do you think that, that people um, who are around another person who's grieving, do they feel awkward? Do they not know what to do? Do they think I'm going to say something wrong? or What do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. And I think that what we have to do is switch the question. Mm -hmm. And I do the same thing. You know, I was driving to a friend's house not too long ago whose adult son had died in a car wreck. And I said to myself, what am I going to say to my dear friend? And then I remembered, I have nothing to say. My job is to listen. Yeah. If we switch this from what do I say, which is a lot an anxiety-filled question. What if I get it wrong? What if I'm awkward? Um, what if I make them feel worse? And, and shift this to say, how do I listen? How do I be present? The pressure goes away, and you're actually doing a much better service for those who, who grieve. The, to trying to get it right in terms of what we say, oftentimes, I mean, I can, can't tell you the number of times that folks, I spend time in the session talking about things that were said to them, probably with good motives, but ended up doing damage, causing them doubt and question and, and self-criticism and more shame. So I would certainly encourage your listeners to think about listening, learn how to listen well. We now have, as you know, enough neuroscience to say that good listening actually changes what goes on inside the brain. That's absolutely right. A richly, a listening-rich environment changes the brain architecture. Well, we've been doing therapy for all these years and hope that was true. Now we've got some scientific backups. We can be a little bit smug, I think, yeah. to say therapy actually does have some scientific backup to it. Absolutely does. And, and I think that part of why it's working is because when you are giving someone the gift of time to listen, you are reminding them of their value. And, yes. and that is what we all have in common. And I think part of, part of grief is if you have lost someone that you love, you've also lost someone who has valued you. Yes, that is so important. I, I ask this question often to folks. I say, tell me who you got to be with them 
that you don't get to be with anybody yeah. else. Because yeah. you lost them, and you lost that part of you that you got to be with them that was unique to them only. What, what about the, the traditions of uh, funerals and wakes and the, and the you know, celebration of the people, but then you see the family standing there in shock and awe and, and the line forms and everybody walks up in that same awkward right. way, you know, I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, what, what can we do better as a society in those situations? We can go longer. We can we can not forget about those folks. And like I said a minute ago, after you, the last casserole dish yeah. is picked up, we can avoid saying cliches. We can just absolutely again be present. And I think you know uh, the "I am sorry" is where you start. I think sometimes you personalize it more. I am sorry that your brother died. Uh, I am sorry that this has happened to you. Uh, the as you know, is going through this, the senses that are going on biologically in the biological domain are sometimes numbness and shock and certainly sometimes trauma. And so what, what's the call look like in a month? Hey, I'm just calling to check in for you. Can I take you to coffee? I want to learn more about your dad. Can you tell me more about that? It's presence over time. We can all show up. And, you know, we can say as we're walking out the door, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Um, but, but that's the other thing I would offer is sometimes do something that's actually physical. Go mow the lawn. Go buy some groceries. Uh, make good on that promise. I want to help you out. But check with them on the anniversary. Bring them dinner two months later. Take them to dinner six months later. Write them a note. I was thinking of your dad today. Um, people want to hear the name of their loved one. They want the acknowledgement. A survey that was done in Slate Magazine, I believe it was, several years ago, the question was, what do you most need? The number one thing was acknowledgement. Don't forget me. And I hear this from, and I know you do from your patients too, uh, and bereaved parents, I won't want my child forgotten. Right. I don't want this to have meant nothing that they lived and, and have died. And so being able to have places to tell the story and it gently and lovingly received is what we can do after the funeral. I think that's such good advice because I, I think people... Um, worry that they're going to stir up a memory, that they're going to make it worse, that they, that they, they shouldn't be reminding the person of their loss. And what you're right. suggesting is exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. And if you get the signal that says, you know, I'm just not ready to go out, you honor that. Or I appreciate your call, but I'm not in a place to talk. I, I think it's better to, if there's two mistakes to make, and one of them is checking in too frequently, make that mistake rather than just abandoning. Let the other person, and listen, you know, deeply to, to get the signaling there, but give them the opportunity and then let them say what they need. So, Mark, does this help you, do you think? Yeah, you know, it's. I've always thought that, you know, the wake, you know, although very important, it seemed um, just not, not that impactful. Um, yeah, although at the same token, I remember virtually every person that came in to to uh, uh, express their concern. But yet, those I mean, the, the the statement about the casserole dishes is is so spot on because where is everybody fourteen twenty one days later? You know, everybody else moves on, but the grieving person's not moving on. So. Sticking with them in time is, is I think, uh, that that's the big takeaway for me on this one, for sure. 
So where where would somebody go from here? Because we now have, you know, really what we're talking about is is empathy, is being able to tune into somebody else, to be, to be able, as you say, just to be there. One mm-hmm. of the things I say is, you know, to bear witness, to, to be mm-hmm. present. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, as you as you walk through your book, how do you build that for people? Where do you start? Well, again, I start with the the idea that you're you are okay. Your grief is not pathology. It may feel crazy. I think of it. Um, you know, I write in the book about three chapters, and I'll I'll give you a little bit more of a parallel on that. Chapter one is before the death. Chapter two is the death itself, and. There are many, many folks I see and many folks who I think benefit from therapy because the death was traumatic. They witnessed it. They found the body. Uh, it, was, it was a premature, traumatic death. Um, and so the nature of the death becomes very important. The third chapter is time after that, except, again, it's not like the usual narrative arc that has resolution and ends. It continues on. So I talk in the book about understanding this. We talk about environmental triggers. You can't not know your loved one in a physical environment. You can get prepared for Christmas and holidays and anniversaries and birthdays, but there's going to be a moment where you smell something that reminds you. You have a change of season. You see something that reminds you, and those zip right past your defense systems and right into your gut, and it feels crazy. It's not crazy. You knew them in a physical environment, and those environmental triggers are going to continue to happen. The other thing I encourage people to do is to know your own personality type. You know, Mark, you were saying you, you might tend to internalize. Well, there are internalizers. There's externalizers. Uh, there's folks who need every detail. There's folks who want a broad stroke. I mean, knowing yourself, I think, in this process is important. So I never suggest that there is one way to do this. On the, on the supportive side, I love the Latin root of the word compassion. Calm meaning with, passion meaning suffer, to be with somebody in their suffering. And again, you've got to manage your own anxiety about that. But the more you're able to do that for someone, the, the, the more that they can begin to integrate. So I think about grief as you're oriented before the loss, you're disoriented at the loss, and you're consistently or kind of constantly reorienting after the lost. And as you all were saying earlier in the show, this isn't about get over. This is about living with. This is about integrating your story of loss into your life. It does change over time. I'm not promoting that the intensity of grief will never change. Over time, we're just biologically designed for there to be a little more space between stimulus and response, where you can have a thought and not necessarily have an intense emotional response to it. But, again, I think that level of being there sometimes gets delayed because we're resisting. We're resisting the pain and the suffering. Mm-hmm. So I think in all these domains you mentioned, how, how we see ourselves, how others see we, the biological, the social. And you learned about loss in your, in your early growing up. There were rituals and there were ways that it was dealt with or not dealt with that are also part of your fabric. And taking a look at those as you go through a grief event I think is crucial as well. I think it's so important for people to know that it doesn't have to end in a year that if you're still right. grieving after a year it doesn't mean it's pathological and I was thinking you know because I've just come back from London um, and Queen Victoria you know 
once her her husband Albert died, she wore black for the rest of her life, and she actually removed herself from the palace, from government for a decade, for ten years. She couldn't. She she just didn't want to have anything else to do with anything because they were so close. So, dare people say that that's pathology? Yeah. What do you think, doctor? Boy, it's a tricky line. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot written and thought about, and you'll see the terms put together, pathological grief. Yep. Well, I would, I would say that grief is not pathological. What I can say is, and as you know, looking at mental health issues, there are times indeed where um, while we use the word depression when we often mean sadness, mm. You know, and the sadness of grief is not depression. Mm-hmm. But I would say it is certainly something to be careful about because the stress of grief can certainly alter the brain chemistry in such a way that the compromises that create and create vulnerability for depression exist. And certainly some folks may come into a grief moment of their life and already have depression as part of what right. they're dealing with or, or anxiety. So I tend to say it's not necessarily grief is pathological. There may be other mental health issues that occur. Uh, but the other point that I think is, is impaired in what you're saying is that we have really lost rituals. We're not a culture, at least our most of the culture in, in, in our country, is not very ritual-based. And you see a lot of these changing, you know, like you were saying, the, that we've gone from funerals to celebration and, um, you know, where we used to have more engagement with the deceased body, that's oftentimes taken away. So in, in, in some ways, the whole cultural rituals that, that help that or that can create the community of support for those who grieve are missing. Uh, mm. So I would never say there is no such thing as pathology related to grief, but I think we've erred on that side for so long. We have got to be more careful and, again, see the organic nature of grief, see it as a very miserable but healthy, you know, painful but, but hard response to the love we had for those who who have left us through death. Yeah, I think that's such an important, as they say, reframe, because, you know, if you're grieving someone and they're not there and you miss them, that means that you were attached. And this is part of, of also what the I Am is about, is that in each of these domains, the home and the social domain, biological and the IC domain, there is the potential for attaching to other people. That's what I mean. You control no one. You influence everyone. Right. And it's so important for us as human beings to recognize this social part of who we are. Because if we don't do that, I think we're doomed. I think we're going to destroy one group will destroy another group because they somehow don't feel that they're as valuable. And, And I challenge any group out there, any person to really think that someone in another group, if they lose someone they love, they're not going to feel the same thing that you would feel right. if you lost someone that you love? Of course they are. So that, that's what binds us together is humanity. Mm. And, and I would encourage your listeners who do not feel like they have community to reach out. I mean, when you think about the purpose of support groups, in a way, are to replace what may be missing in natural community that it is a constructed group, but all of the judgments and all of the shame is checked at the door. And there are dozens of different kinds of of support groups for folks who grieve. I'll 
tell you a little bit more about the book, if I could. I Please, also please. have a section in the back of the book about how to put a group together. And I strongly encourage journaling your story. And throughout the book, there are prompts. And at the end of the book, there's a whole section. You can do this by yourself, just in the privacy of your home, or you can get groups of folks together and use the structure of there to construct and connect and deepen and share your story. And I, I absolutely agree that if we cannot open ourselves to our own story and to the stories of others, the kind of divisions that happen in those social d- domain just continue, and, uh, and, we, and we lose just lovely, beautiful, intimate connections with others. So, so in some truly ironic way, grief is a way to bring people together. Even though you've lost someone or some people, it is also a way to bring people together. It's our most universal experience. Mm. It, it is the one thing we will all experience. Yep. And yes, our stories mm. differ, but there is so much that we share, and and it does bring people together. And I find, you know, in some of the support groups I talk to, levels of intimacy that I don't see anywhere else. Mm. When you think about the definition of NFC, or at least the one I use in my practice, is it's to know and to be known. Yeah. And if you're open to let yourself be known about your losses and to receive the losses of others. It is really a remarkable level of intimacy. So this, you know, we, we have a little less than a minute or so left. How do people get the book? How do they, they have a website? How do they get the book? Tell us how to get these things. There's two ways to connect with that. Um, any of the booksellers, we'd be glad to drop that at your front door um, uh, anytime you wish. Again, the name of it is uh, Getting Grief Right. Finding Your Story of Love and the Sorrow of Loss. I have a blog site that is D-R-P-A-T-R-I-C-K-O-M-A-L-L-E-Y.com, DrPatrickOmalley.com. And I try and put out a blog about every uh, three to four weeks, and I get two compliments on the blog. The first one is, I love how short it is. Mm. And then I say, well, that's good. Did you like what I wrote? Uh, but what, what I write, I think, is useful, too. So I'd love to have you on my blog list. All right, great. Folks, Dr. Patrick O'Malley has been talking with us about grief. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and you can find him at his blog site. Let's tune in and listen. Thanks, Dr. O'Malley. Appreciate you, it. You are welcome. I enjoyed our, our time together. Thank I feel you much, much better. <laughs> Good. Bye. Bye.